Glass Ceiling comes to you from our studio located at the Barangaroo Precinct in Sydney. Startup Daily would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay respect to their ancestors, both past and present. Hi everyone, and welcome to episode three of Glass Ceiling, a fortnightly podcast that looks to amplify diverse voices in the tech and startup space. I'm here with my lovely co-host, Gina Baldessari. Hello, James. Hello there, Gina. (laughs) So, uh, do you want to hear about who we're talking to in this episode? Uh, Tell me more, tell me more. So, this week I spoke to Cyan Taid, who is best known as being the founder of a platform called Invado, which she founded with her partner, Collis, back in the olden days of 2006. She is also the founder of a platform called New Day Box and a new social enterprise that is soon to launch working in the artisanal chocolate space called Hey Tiger. Cyan, thank you for joining me on Glass Ceiling. How are you today? Very well, thank you, Gina. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. So, um, I guess the big news for you is that Invado has just recently celebrated its 11th birthday. And um, reading up on it, what I thought was pretty interesting was that you guys sort of had um, the, the quintessential sort of startup story where you started up in a garage, where I think now it's more the quintessential startup story is people, you know, having a desk in a co-working space and then building up from there, but you guys were like pretty old school. So um, I guess, you know, back in 2006, um, you know, what, what led to the birth of the business and what kind of, I guess, experience did you have with business beforehand and what really mm-hmm. pushed you to get it going? Well, at the time, I was a graphic designer and my co-founder and husband, Collis, um, was a web designer. And we were working, we're both pretty young, um, working in our respective industries, freelancing, and um, and had a sort of a small little sort of design business together, I guess. Um, one employee who we really had no idea how to, how to manage, but was lovely, um, and we were we kept on feeling like there was all this stuff that we would have liked to have been selling and would have liked to have been buying in terms of stock that just didn't exist. Um, add to that that um, that I'm I'm the daughter of a photographer um, and a fashion um, designer, and I come from a family of creatives, and I think the way. Microstock and, and stock generally was set up at that point around the percentage of each sale that the, the person who created the work would be getting. Um, that didn't sit well with me. Sometimes it was as low as 10% of every sale would go to the seller and that just, I just actively disliked that. Um, so we also felt like we would like to travel. And, um, and we thought maybe a little online business might be the key to that because we were quite, at that period of time, as a freelancer, you still needed to be in the same location as your clients. You had to be go, you had to go visit them physically and be there. It's not like that now, but it certainly was the case back then. So we thought, oh, well, what if we created a marketplace, um, where people could buy and sell 
all the stuff that we feel that, you know, designers and developers would actually get use out of. Uh, and and then maybe, you know, it'll become a little business and then we can travel. And so we launched it thinking that it would take a few weeks and, um, and you know, cost, you know, a few grand. And, and we got a, a really, really talented developer in to sort of work with us on a contract basis to get it built. And fast forward five months and, you know, we hadn't taken a day off. We were, we were taking as much freelance work as we could um, during the day and in the evenings and on the weekends working on um, working on this new business and um, and living in my parents' basement and working out of their garage. We'd borrowed money from my husband's parents and we'd maxed out our credit cards. So we were really, um, we were in pretty deep. We had no idea what we'd been, <laughs> there's this sort of the scope of what we had planned. But, um, but then, then we launched them very, very slowly it started to pick up pace. Yeah, all of that for just, you know, what you had thought would be just a little online business. This is the thing. We sort of, I think it often happens in startups as well, or businesses generally. You start up with a certain set of goals, and then as time goes on, those goals increase and increase. And I think a lot of that is also to do with realising just how much goes into starting a business and how hard it actually is and all the different pieces that need to come together. Yeah, and, you know, on that front, like what kind of, I suppose, resources did you guys have available to you as you started building? I mean, in 2006, there wasn't exactly, a, you know, a huge startup scene to, to speak of. There was no... Uh, there may have been a nascent startup ecosystem, but we certainly weren't in it. We never used the word startup. We considered an online. It was it was an online business, and at the time when you told your friends that you were starting an online business and you'd end up working in your parents' garage and living in their basement, nobody thought that was cool. There was no like startup cachet like there is now, where people know what a startup is and think think that's quite a cool thing to be doing. Everyone thought we were absolutely crazy. Um, and on top of that, really didn't understand even what it was that we were doing. Uh, so we were kind of a little bit, you know, on a little island. I think what did help us was I come from a very entrepreneurial family. Nobody sort of, um, not not a not a um, not a wealthy family by any stretch of the imagination, but a family where there was an assumption that you would work for yourself. Mm-hmm. and that you work on your own terms and you would start a business. And in the women in my family on my father's side were all, you know, had all started businesses, which I, I took as being quite normal as a 26-year-old starting in Vato. But in hindsight, I realized it's quite, it's quite an unusual thing. Mm. Um, so I, I just sort of imagined, you know, in Vato was my, actually my third business when I started it. I sort of had two, two goes before that at different different things. So I think there was that. There was that um, understanding within my within, you know, my mind and in my family's mind that it was this was a normal and, and healthy thing to do and mm-hmm. not a sort of a um, not a ridiculous risk. Um, yeah. and, and I also had my family to fall back on. Like we did end up living in their basement. Um, my and eating their food and you know yeah. like they basically just sort of supported us through that 
and then um and then I think my husband, his father, who's the um well until recently was the chairperson of our board, he um had a background in technology companies, so um he had run a technology company in Papua New Guinea for a long time. And so I think we were able to go to him and say, look, what what aren't we thinking about on the business side or on the scaling side or, you know, and um, or the risk side? We were very, very trusting and green and um, and he really put his sort of the risk cap on, um, threats and risks cap on for us mm-hmm. and, and thought about where we would need to be in a few years and sort of started to help us think in, in terms of in terms of that. So that those two things were incredibly helpful. I think those really made a massive difference. Yeah. Okay. And you know, you mentioned before that you know the whole idea was that you wanted a, a sort of online business that you could work on from anywhere. And you know, I've read that you've said before that flexibility was sort of built into the business via mm-hmm. the travelling you then did. And mm-hmm. um, you know that that's something that's still core to the business and you know your employees can work from a different country for up to three months of the year and that kind of thing um yeah you know and that forms a part of you know the business's value set i guess in terms of the broader values um you know how did you come to um define those and what are they um i was somebody who always thought that values were Almost a bit self-indulgent, a bit, a bit, just just businesses sort of talking and not really doing anything. To be quite honest with you, until we ended up, you know, getting some good advice that you know we really did need to think about them and they really could be important. We had a baked-in value from the very beginning. We didn't really term it as such. It was just sort of part of the DNA of the business a bit, and it was when the community succeeds, we succeed. And by that we meant our, our our community of sellers. We call them authors, but our community of the community of people who make the stuff. When we succeed, when they succeed, we succeed. And that I think led us to really make a lot of decisions for the long term health of the ecosystem, which weren't to do with the bottom line. And that was also, you know, we were also able to do that because we were we weren't still our bootstrapped. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, um, I think that was sort of really the core value where everything else stems from. I think when we started to we started to realise we needed values when we got to a size where it was impossible for us to really be having conversations with every person on the team on a regular basis um, to be sort of you know talking about what was important and having these formal values really started to make a lot of sense. At that point, because it meant we could kind of, you know, write down this is what we stand for. We actually did it as a very collaborative process with the team. So, you know, it was months of going back and forth. And I think at the time we had a team of about 150 people and I realised that about two-thirds at one stage had a sort of had an active hand in crafting one bit or another of those values, you know, and down to sort of, you know, down to like words and, and you know, and like specific words that we were using, people were really sort of getting involved in exactly how we were communicating these things. So the core is when the community succeeds, we succeed. We have um, other values like um, diverse and inclusive, 
um, not just the bottom line, uh, tell it like it is. We have actually eight values um, all up and people actually use them, which is amazing. So, um, you know, we'll be having a conversation about a feature and somebody will say, oh, but, you know, is the community really going to succeed if we do this? Or, you know, we'll be talking about sort of, you know, whether we should, I guess, sort of think about a um, community-oriented project potentially. And some will say, but, you know, we are just not about, we're not about the bottom line here. So, you know, what are we sort of, like, how are we sort of thinking about it with that lens on? So they're used as argument points. And it's interesting as a founder that sometimes, you know, the team feels confident enough in them that sometimes you'll be saying, I think we should do something this way. And they'll go, oh, but what about this value? I really don't think you're living to the values. Um, and it, so, you know, it's also one of those things you think, oh, goodness, sometimes this really sort of bites me because I can't, <laughs> I can't sort of get away with anything here. But it's really, it's, it's great. It's really good. I'm so happy that we, um, that we did them and that we lived them. Yeah, and I, I find the the you know the whole idea of it's not just about the bottom line really um, interesting because I think like quite honestly in startups you don't always that's not always I guess the prevailing um, motto I guess and um, you mentioned as well that obviously you've never taken um, funding you're still bootstrapping I guess mm-hmm. what kind of you know reactions did you encounter from people within I guess the sort of wider business community um, you know in response to um, you know this kind of work that Invado has been doing and you know for example was there ever a push to to take funding as well like that kind of thing um, well it certainly is consistent and um, an effortful uh encouragement to take funding now but from the people who want to fund us which is a you know very nice place to be but on the other hand you know I was speaking to um I was in a situation where I was speaking to probably about five five startup founders who had you know um had all taken funding and we were having a conversation about whether we should you know like what our next step should be and um and one of them who is he's known for speaking his mind um said, if you take funding when you don't need to, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I hope swearing's okay on this podcast. Oh, for um, sure. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, and, and really, and, you know, there was just nodding, you know, um, every every sort of, every face in that conversation was, was nodding sort of vehemently to that comment because I do think the, Reality is that you're sacrificing a lot when you take funding and it's a reality, you know, I think I always have to caveat this with we launched Invado in a very different time and we launched on a whole bunch of virgin ground and were first to market in a whole bunch of different spaces and if we were going in now, we would have to take funding. There's no way we couldn't. So really, you know, it's one of those things that I think that we were we happened to sort of hit upon the idea and launch it in the right way at a time when we had to spend a little bit of time and energy and money to educate the market, but not that much. They were very sort of ready for it. And then we sort of created a um, a system that worked and we were able to roll it out in a whole bunch of different areas and get first market. So um, we, I don't know, I always say that if we'd taken funding back in the day, 
we really wouldn't have known what to do with it. We would have done dumb stuff with it. And now, you know, you never know, you never say never. There might be some amazing opportunity that comes along. We might go, you know, right now, now we want to take funding or, you know. Um, but um, up till now, we've always found that anything we wanted to do where we felt confident that we would be able to sort of, you know, that, that it was a, a calculated risk um, that was worth taking, we've been able to afford it. Sometimes a little bit of stretch, but we've been able to afford it ourselves. Yeah. Does, does a little bit of that come back to, you know, you mentioned so many women in your family have, have run businesses where it's just mm-hmm. you think back to, to to them and not to say like, you know, it was a simpler time for them, you know, back then, but, you know, that they were able to do it without all this, like, fancy startup terminology and that kind of thing. Like, mm. you can do it too. Like, it's it's still business as business. I must say, that's really interesting. I never thought of it in that way. But I do think potentially it never occurred to either of us that we would take on external money. And I think that's because we wanted to not be effectively have a boss and we wanted to do stuff sometimes that would be, you know, like we, we raised the percentage of how much sellers got from every sale multiple times and if we'd taken funding, there's no way we would have been able to do that because we would have gone, oh, my goodness, these people that, you know, we've got people on the board who are looking for their return hmm. in the, you know, in the next few years and we can't sort of play... A long game here so I think that potentially you know I I did have a family background of you know you build things up slowly over time and you don't over over invest you don't overextend you're conservative but you just slowly build a foundation and um and you know my 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 husband and partner Collins who's very he's a you know for a startup founder he's risk averse he he also likes to have really strong foundations and then build on that. So I think, you know, I mean, obviously it's a big risk to begin in the, you know, to begin with to decide mm. you've got to put all your money into a business. So we're not that risk averse, but in comparison to some startup founders who I feel almost like there's almost a gambling mentality to it. I'm putting it all on black and let's hope it succeeds. Mm. We're not we're not those people. Yeah. Okay. And um, a big part of um, the Envato business as well, as you were mentioning before, is, you know, your efforts around diversity and inclusion. Um, mm-hmm. And you've started the Apprentice Developer Program for Women, mm-hmm. um, partnered with um, Code Like a Girl. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, with with all of that, I know you've released, you know, your... your um, uh, workforce diversity figures as well. Um, mm-hmm. What led to that? And I guess you know they were saying like the first step is acknowledging that there is an issue there um, in mm. terms of you know the, the number of women in the workforce wasn't as high as you would have liked. What led to mm. um, I guess the realization that that was a problem and that you wanted to do something about it? It's funny because for a long time I you know really didn't think about it in any meaningful way. And I think a lot of that was because that, you know, as a bootstrapped founder, um, I, 
didn't come across it that much. I just had, you know, head down in, in Vato and obviously everyone's going to be, you know, nice to the founder. Occasionally, I sort of, occasionally <laughs> I would, um, uh, you know, come across somebody external and I'd think, wow, they, they just behaved a little bit poorly. But I, I tended to sort of, um, I tended to put that down to something about me as opposed to something about, about gender. So I never kind of I, I was never sort of across it I guess in any in any meaningful way. Um, the abridged version of sort of how this all came about was something horrible happened in the tech community in um, in America, mm-hmm. and um, a couple of our senior developers, uh, you know, um, men two men, um, came up and said, "Listen, we'd really like to sign a sort of a sign a statement." saying that we won't stand for this sort of thing and we'd like to do it in front of it, on behalf of Invato. And we thought about this and we said, yeah, you know, sure, that's a you know, great thing to do, but does that actually mean that much? Like signing a piece of paper, what difference mm. does that actually make? If you really think that there is an issue here, um, you know, let's do more than that. You know, come up. You know, like come up with a strategy for how we deal with this. And around about that same time, you know, there was um, the um, technology companies were starting to release their diversity figures in the state, and we thought, well, you know, why don't we why don't we do this here in Australia and start this as a trend, and then and then start to think about this a little bit more actively. So I went and I spoke to every woman at Invato mm-hmm. um, and said you know, sort of a, a one-on-one and said, look, you know, how's it been for you working in technology? How is it for you working at Envato? What do you wish was different? You know, all these, you know, like just sort of trying to trying to understand a little bit more. And I do still think that, you know, one of the best things you can do is go and talk to people, really, you know, because often people, people you're working with, people, you know, in the space you want to work in, whatever it might be, have the, have the answer. Um, so did that. And based on that, really started to get a bit more context about what the tech industry can be like, um, not just for women, but for minorities generally. Mm. Um, and thought, well, you know, 51% of the population is women. We know there's a clear sort of issue here. Let's start here. And what we've also realized is that when we, de- when we start to address um, the diversity and inclusion issues, um, focusing on women, that it also has a positive impact on all these other sort of areas of inclusion and diversity that we would, you know, like to be better at as well. So obviously, it's not just it's not just about gender. Um, mm. And what's interesting is different spaces mean different things. So, for instance, you know, in um, LGBTI, it's in my in my opinion, based on sort of the research that I've done and, and what we've learned as a business. It seems to be more about inclusion because there's actually a, you know, quite a high percentage of LGBT people working in tech. And mm. so it becomes more of a thing around inclusion rather than, you know, how to, you know, so it's interesting. You, you sort of develop over time and I'd say it probably took us about three years to wrap our head around, um, gender in technology and broadly start to figure out, okay, well, what's useful to do and what's not. And um, and you know we're in the same process in these in these other sort of areas now that we would like to address. And it's still it's a 
huge work in progress, but a couple of the things that we thought we realised were really sort of, um, I guess, were going to shift the dial was embracing flexibility. Because up until then, we had this this, this um, team of people outside of Melbourne who were, you know, working working from anywhere, working on their own sort of, you know, on their own terms, on their own hours, and we gave them a high level of trust because we had to, because, you know, at that time there was, you know, skill sets that they had outside of Melbourne that we just couldn't find in Melbourne. Um, but everyone in Melbourne was still expected to be, we still had flexible start and end times, but expected to be in the office between 10 and, 10 and 4. So uh, we realised that that actually made life very difficult um, for, well, look, for working mothers, primarily, quite honestly, but working parents as well. As soon as we started to dig a little bit deeper, we realised, my goodness, this isn't just a working mother's issue. And as long as we make it, make flexibility a working mother's issue, then even if we give them the flexibility, they still lose. Because suddenly, you know, it's like, oh, well, yeah, we have the flexibility, so, you know, so the working mums, they all go. You know, they all go to do the drop-off, but we're all still here. So it was the rest of us are still here. So it was really about encouraging everybody in the team to take and embrace that flexibility. And then it became, okay, well, how do we encourage men in our team to do part-time, to do job share, to take that flexibility? Um, because then once everyone was doing it, then suddenly this sort of... Um, stigma and handicap that working mothers had when they took flexibility was gone. Mm. And that, I think, was one of the most, you know, meaningful things that that we could do as a business, um, you know, in, in those sort of early, early stages. Yeah. And it's so interesting when you say, like, there's just so much that diversity and inclusion can encompass and so many things that you can do to really push that like I saw that you have um you know part of your your roadmap includes mental health support and mental mm-hmm. health awareness training for managers which is quite um you know I haven't really seen that at too many other companies like how do you mm-hmm. come to realize that that might be an issue or something that's needed um that really comes down to listening to the team more than anything else so we just found that, you know, we'd have these fishbowl sessions um, where we'd be talking to the team about what they felt was important in terms of inclusion and, and um, you know, mental health, I guess, sort of awareness and, and you know, um, managers having the skill set to be able to um, assist and, you know, and deal with it when people in their team are having, you know... Um, mental health issues because I mean it's one in five people or something it's really not it's it's um it's not an unusual thing it is not like it is something that was um unknown in the business it had come up multiple times and if you're you know I think what I'm always saying about managers you know if you've got a flexible team um management you know really evolves it's not just a bums on seat mentality anymore it's about you know, um, it's about giving people really clear goals and engaging with them and sort of being with them in, on this on this growth journey. And it's almost about, you know, where I'm here to help you and support you and um, to facilitate you growing 
professionally and sometimes even personally, um, you know, whether it's within Invato or even sometimes, you know, means outside of Invato as well, if we don't have the opportunity for you or if it's not like you or whatever. Um, but it's, you know, it's this whole sort of concept that managers are there to serve their team. And I'm always saying, you know, I think a lot of people think that, oh, well, my career progression is that I become a manager, um, even if I don't actually care about people. And, you know, what we generally say is, look, if you don't care about people and you're not there to sort of serve your team and help them get the best out of themselves, then you really shouldn't be a manager. So often do something else. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And when you think about it, like, so many of us spend more time at work or in the office than you do with with friends or family so your work team essentially becomes a sort of second family I suppose they do and I'm not saying that you stop you stop focusing on results like we focus very heavily on results and there's expectations and you know but I think that um I think the, the sort of the focus on the mental health stuff was you know if we're on this journey with a team of people and, and a diverse team of people has stuff, you know, like, you know, when I, I'm saying diverse in the broadest sense of the word, if you've got a really diverse team, there's going to be, you know, part of that is that sometimes people are going to be having mental health stuff going on and you need to, you know, know how to be there to assist them while they're moving through it. And I think, yeah. that, you know, that's, it's, I don't know, it just it, it came up as something that was really important and now I'm so happy that we've done it and we've focused on it because I think we've all learned a huge amount and that reduction of stigma aside from anything else I think is so good for assisting people to, to be able to get through it in an environment where they feel that they're understood and heard and there's patience around it. Yeah. Is there, I guess, you know, for you as a founder... At first, was there a little, like, feeling of, like, you know, to confront this means to have to think, like, is it something wrong with the company in terms of, you know, people aren't happy here? Or, you know, as you said, like, you've come to understand that a diverse workforce means that there will be people mm. dealing with these kinds of things. But is there a little bit of that? Like, do you think that that might be, you know, something confronting other founders and, you know, if, if they're trying to think about this in their teams? I think, I think, mate, uh, look, our, our great place to work results are always really, yes. like, everyone's very happy. <laughs> That's so true. Like, oh, great, sick. That's good. And, you know, I think if people were, were unhappy, I would find that very upsetting. And I have to say, even when results dip, you know, a couple of points around people's satisfaction at work on their happiness and things like that, I feel upset about that because I always feel like there's been a I guess you know people say oh you shouldn't talk about luck in terms of founding a business because women especially overemphasize luck I'm not doing that but what I am saying is in all honesty for a business to get to the size that Envato has luck has played a part um, and there's plenty of people I've met startup founders who are unbelievable founders with great ideas and incredible work ethics and they've done all the right things, but the market just hasn't been with them. So I, I, you know, I always think that there's been a, a high degree of luck that I'm here where I am, that I'm here and I'm actively engaged in creating a workplace 
where hundreds of people um, are spending their working lives for however long they choose to stay with us. And for that reason, I take it really seriously um, because I always think, well, if I'm the one who won the lottery here, who gets to have all this control and, you know, this, this business is doing really well and there's all these people who are working for us as a business, then I've got to make sure I do a good job of it. Um, so I, I tend to, I do tend to feel quite um, upset when things go, uh, aren't going well, but I don't think that um, mental health, you know, um, ensuring that we're doing the right stuff around mental health um, has, has anything to do with it because I think that everything can be going right in someone's life mm-hmm. and, you know, stuff just comes up for them, you know, on a mental yeah. health level. Uh, yeah. You know, so it's just, it's just another, it's just another area of awareness and sort of an inclusion as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so whether you won the lottery or all the hard work you've put in as well into building Invito, as if that wasn't enough, I know you're launching something new very soon, which I'm pretty excited about. Hey, Tiger, <laughs> an artisanal chocolate. <laughs> business so to switch from one to the other so soon but um yeah um what is that all about what can you tell us about it um so I think I'd had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to do something new for a while um I'd done some sort of startup type of stuff within Invato but a company of Invato size now um the stuff you're thinking about is very different and the stuff you think about in the early days of a business. And to be honest, I'd missed doing a startup, and I think I wanted to try. I, I, I'd i been engaged in the idea of a social enterprise for a while, and Bato's really a business with purpose, but it's still a, you know, it's still a traditional business. It's a capitalist business, um, which, you know, and I, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But I think I thought, oh, you know, I, I, I get asked a lot about the future of work, um, and you know about artificial intelligence and automation and um, and, and job loss, and there's some pretty scary statistics around that stuff. And I think what I what I sort of started to think about was how businesses can, you know, not just benefit shareholders, but truly exist to benefit communities on a really holistic level. So I had that in the back of my mind. The logical conclusion to that was really a social enterprise. Um, and then I went to the States and I, and I, I've been obsessed with chocolate for a very long time and I've <laughs> had it. Oil. Oh, I know, exactly. <laughs> um, and, um, and I've, uh, I've made chocolate for a long time. Um, just as like sort of something that I really enjoyed doing as a bit of a, a bit of a hobby type thing. Not, you know, um, not anything big, but just a kind of a bit of a, bit of a um, flow relaxation activity and um, and I a few things happened all sort of at once. One was I got this eye injury which meant that um, I basically couldn't really see for about properly for about three months and I had to be in the dark a lot um, and I so I couldn't work and I and I just had all this thinking time and it really stopped me. I had to get off the treadmill of Invato completely and think about, okay, well, what, you know, what do I actually want to be doing here? What do I find fulfilling? What's interesting? And, you know, so that was really, really useful, that enforced kind of slowing down time because I don't think if I'd had it, 
I ever would have sort of had the headspace really to pull out of in of the day to day of Invato in the way that I've I've been able to since in order to do this new thing. The second thing was I started supporting um a project in um Burkina Faso, the third the, the third poorest country in the world, bordered by Ghana and the Ivory Coast. Um, and I started learning about what, what was happening there and about um, how the communities there are impacted by the cocoa trade, so a lot of um, child slavery and child trafficking and child labour. Um, and the third thing was I went to the States and I was just like, there's just this amazing sort of third wave chocolate movement here, um, which is not just about these really dark bean-to-bar darks, but about incredible milks and incredible whites and sort of... Um, really amazing sort of um, play of flavors and um, and and inclusions and additional ingredients that are that are put in there. And I looked at all these three these sort of these things together, and I thought, well, I feel like probably within the next couple of years, somebody's going to bring this trend to Australia because it tends to take you know a little bit of time for trends to come to Australia. Um, and look, maybe I should do it and make it a social enterprise and just give it a crack. So that's what I'm doing, um, which is so different to, to anything that I've done in the past. Um, physical products, uh, you know, food. It's, it's a whole new, it's a whole, whole new ball game, but it's so much fun. And, um, and we're, you know, I, I think the product's really fantastic. So we're still in the product stages and I think it's, I mean, look, you know, you're obviously you're always biased when it's your baby. You're like, this is going to change the world. It's absolutely amazing. But um, we're doing we're doing some testing, and, and the test uh, testers are coming back pretty sort of enthusiastic. So that's reassuring. And um, and then really, you know, what what's been interesting is um, at first I wanted to have it all absolutely set up right from the get go. So we had this sort of virtuous. Almost like this this cycle of um, of uh, I guess impact um, from you know Ghana and the Ivory Coast, which is the areas that we that we need to be impactful. And we realised, you know, we spoke to a couple of people who were really engaged and, and knowledgeable in the social enterprise stage, and they said, look, just set up as a social enterprise, build it up as a business, and during that time. Um, become more and more impactful because the feedback that we got is often people sort of really focus heavily on the, on the sort of impact side, but then they don't have an effective business to support it to begin with. So mm-hmm. the way we've decided to start is we're going to, um, um, sorry, she's getting another call. Um, <laughs> the way that we have decided to, um, do it is um, we're just starting by having a partnership with the Hunger Project and um, working on supporting community development projects in Ghana in the um, in the cocoa farming belt. Things like early childhood education, um, you know, uh, farming processes, um, you know, maternal and child health all those sort of areas to try and sort of, you know, to learn as well because, you know, obviously it's a big deal to try and learn about what an African community, an African cocoa farming community actually needs Um, and you really don't want to go in there and go, I think you need this and that's actually not what they need at all. So, um, 
so we're sort of we're going to launch the business um, hopefully beginning of January. Um, it was going to be end of November, but things always things roadblocks always come up <laughs> um, in early January and just really start to build that good foundation again. Hopefully, people will love it as much as I do. And then over time, the plan is that within five years we get to a stage where we're actively sort of actively working with those cocoa farming communities to buy their cocoa to bring it over. Um, we're still buying ethically at this point, but just we don't have that directing yet. So I feel like once we launch, there'll be that sort of challenge. So there's a good five years of work to sort of really get it to the place that I want it to be if the market actually wants it, which sounds, I hope they do. Sounds easy peasy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that is something the market will want. I'm excited for January. Oh, I'm to, I'll totally send you some and tell me what you think. <laughs> Well, Cyan, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time and it was a very interesting chat. Well, thank you so much for having me, Gina. Wow, that was a really interesting chat. You know, 2006, like in reality, it's not actually that long ago, yet it seems like an eternity ago. Yeah, definitely in in startup world and as I kind of, you know, said to Cyan, like it really was the the stereotypical startup story back in the day of, you know, starting out working from a garage, but it's funny how quickly that's changed and for a lot of founders the first kind of step is, you know, starting out in a co-working space because there are just so many um, you know, resources and networks available. Um from from a co-working space mm. which I guess was the problem that Cyan and Collis faced in that there wasn't really any sort of community to speak of back then that they could you know rely on yeah and it just makes you think what that sort of experience will look like for a founder 11 years on from now <laughs> yeah um, how quickly will things change back to the garage maybe <laughs> Maybe, but I think what will always, you know, be important and become even more important going forward is, you know, all that stuff around diversity and really being mindful of, you know, what your company looks like and how, you know, your company treats its staff and how they're feeling and, you know, how, Mm. how how that relates to the work that they're doing. Yeah, and uh, like we're actually recording um, this podcast on Are You OK Day. So, yeah, speaking of um, that sort of side of things and looking at caring about your employees and making sure they're okay, like I really liked how, um, you know, Cyan and the business puts an emphasis on, you know, the mental health of of their employees. Exactly. And it's it's such a funny thing because well, not funny at all really because mm. in in startups like the the failure rate is so well known, you know, 90% of startups fail and then again we talk about how much, you know, founders put their whole lives into a business, their yeah. life savings, they go all in and then when you think 90% fail and to get, you know, the the decision to Mm. end it isn't an easy one like you you do everything you can before you know um i don't want to say give up but you know shut just making the decision to to shut the startup down so imagine like the mental toll that takes in getting to that point and you know for your 
employees as well like it yeah i think there's a very important conversation to be had around mental health and awareness of that in the startup space so um yeah it's very good and interesting to see a company like envato you know putting it front and center yeah it is really an interesting conversation and speaking of conversations our next uh, conversation will be with benjamin chong from right click capital a fortnight from now yep that is our next episode so keep your eyes peeled for that or your ears peeled um in the meantime Remember to um, leave us a review and rate Glass Ceiling wherever you found it, um, whichever podcasting platform you use, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, rate and leave a review. Absolutely. And if you have any spare time for more podcasts, you can check out Startup Meet Corporate where you can catch more of Gina um, and our wonderful founder, Matt, exploring the ways that different industries approach and view innovation. Innovation.